329, chapters 32 and 33. Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who love books. My name is Heather Ordover, and I'm podcasting from the shores of the Potomac in Virginia, the Old Dominion. Episode 329, Relax. This episode brought to you by Little Acorn Creations, handmade accessories for heart and home. And Knit Circus, the e-newsletter delivered to your mailbox, bringing you three rings of knitting, sewing, and fun. You can find out more at www.knitcircus.com. And Pennywise Consulting, technology solutions for your small business. And links to all of our sponsors can be found in the sidebar of the show notes at craftlit.com. Please visit them as their support for the show is one of the things that keeps it free for you. Hi there. I hope your holidays were merry and bright, and I hope now you have some time to relax as we wrap up the Age of Innocence. I'm also putting in the show notes for you a picture that I got off of Twitter, and I added it to the um, Bleak House feed a couple weeks ago, but I thought, oh, you may not have seen this. It's really adorable. Mid-December this year, Neil Gaiman did a reading of an abridged version of A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. This is an abridgment that Charles Dickens himself did for the purposes of public speaking, and Neil Gaiman dressed up as Charles Dickens. So in the show notes, you can see that picture now. But now, Age of Innocence. Well, things have been heating up in poor Newland Archer's world, and today is no exception. We have three chapters left, two of them this episode, and the final in our last episode for this book, The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. Now, in case you didn't catch it before, our next book after the Age of Innocence, will be North and South by Elizabeth Gaskell. And if you recall, ooh, about a year ago, I had a talk with a Victorian scholar, Larry Uffelman, and we talked about Jane Eyre and Elizabeth Gaskell and Charlotte Bronte and that whole era of literature and, and life in England. And Larry made it clear that there were two books by Elizabeth, Elizabeth Gaskell that would be good for us he thought. Uh, one was Cranford, and one was North and South. And North and South seem to be the one that's uh, most easily misunderstood by the modern world, and probably most easily misunderstood, especially by people who don't live in England, and who can't, therefore, natively hear the accents between the northern part of England and the southern part of England. That's what the North and South is about. For those of us in the United States, it's very easy to assume that the North and the South are referring to the Civil War and uh, and what happened here. Not so. I tell you, Elizabeth Gaskell was writing at the same time as Charlotte Bronte. They were friends. And, uh, and if you haven't listened to that episode back a year ago in uh, early 2013, uh, it's well worth a listen. I will be talking to Larry Effelman once again as we head into the book so he can kind of lay some groundwork for everybody about things to listen for and what Gaskell was up to and some of the sticking points, difficulties, things that we might have trouble with in a, a modern world, understanding about the world that Elizabeth Gaskell lived in. 
So that is the book we will do next. That will start the first week of February 2014. I will take a break once this book is over to prepare for the next book. So the other thing for the Just the Books listeners is that I probably will not be back with a pure Just the Books feed. It has become untenable for me to be both gainfully employed and run all of the different podcasts. What I have started doing is I have moved the time code up on the show notes at Craftlit. And what that means for you, if you are a Just the Books listener, is that especially if you get the free app for a smartphone or if you uh, listen online or on iTunes, if you glance at the show notes, it will say book talk begins at five minutes and 23 seconds or 18 minutes and 17 seconds. And all that means is if you fast forward to that point, you will skip all the crafty chat and you'll be able to start right away with the book talk and then the chapter of the book. So it'll be almost like a Just the Books episode, except not. So I, I apologize for not being independently wealthy <laughs> and and being able to pull this off any longer, but uh, but I just can't. So that is the other news for the new year. That being said, let's get on with chapters 32 and 33 of The Age of Innocence. Now, during the course of the first, you know, five-eighths, seven-eighths of this book, we've seen a lot of uh, people like Larry Lefferts and Julian Beaufort um, being less than upfront, being kind of reprehensible in the way that they conduct their personal life, and getting away with it. And then there's Newland, who doesn't seem to be able to get away with anything. He and Ellen have had this odd, on-again, off-again, romance-slash-relationship thing. It's never really gelled. They've had a very difficult time. And something is bubbling under the surface, and it's very hard to identify what. And I'm here to tell you that today you will get answers, and they will be marvelous and wonderful payoffs. It's one of those things that makes you realize just how good and calculating a writer Edith Wharton has been all the way along. And you will, I think, enjoy today quite a lot. Uh, Since we've already gone through so much of this book, there really aren't any terms or words or people or places or things that are going to pop up that you don't already know about. One of the things that Edith Wharton uh, does throughout this book is she she works very hard to get you into the routine of life. You know, she has, has told us that when the season changes to this, this is what New York does. And when the season changes to that, this is where New York goes. And when the season changes to this, this is where you will find all of the fashionable intelligence <laughs> straight out of Bleak House. This is how the people live their lives on on not so much a, even a day-to-day basis as a season by season basis. And so we've we've moved through time and we've seen this rotation, this revolution in their life. Uh, revolution is in the the turning of the earth, not revolution as in grabbing your pitchforks. And um, and now we're we're heading into a repeat performance of quite quite a, a few familiar tropes that we've seen. And she's clearly doing that purposefully. 
Because this time, while the places and the events are the same, everything else has changed for Newland. He is not the young man who started the book, and he will never be that young man again, as you will see today. So without making you wait any longer, I am going to turn you over to the lovely voice of Brenda Dane, reading you chapters 33, 32 and 33, sorry, I almost scared you there, 32 and 33 of The Age of Innocence by Edith Warren. Chapter 32 At the court of the Tuileries, said Mr. Sillerton Jackson, with his reminiscent smile, such things were pretty openly tolerated. The scene was the Vanderloyden's Black Walnut Dining Room in Madison Avenue, and the time, the evening after Newland Archer's visit to the Museum of Art. Mr. and Mrs. Vanderloyden had come to town for a few days from Scoiter Cliff, whither they had precipitately fled at the announcement of Beaufort's failure. It had been represented to them that the disarray into which society had been thrown by this deplorable affair made their presence in town more necessary than ever. It was one of the occasions when, as Mrs. Archer put it, they owed it to society to show themselves at the opera and even to open their own doors. It will never do, my dear Louisa, to let people like Mrs. Lemuel Struthers think they can step into Regina's shoes. It is just at such times that new people push in and get a footing. It was owing to the epidemic of chickenpox in New York, the winter Mrs. Struthers first appeared, that the married men slipped away to her house while their wives were in the nursery. You and dear Henry, Louisa, must stand in the breach, as you always have. Mr. and Mrs. Vanderloyden could not remain deaf to such a call, and reluctantly, but heroically, they had come to town, unmuffled the house, and sent out invitations for two dinners and an evening reception. On this particular evening they had invited Sillerton Jackson, Mrs. Archer and Newland and his wife, to go with them to the opera, where Faust was being sung for the first time that winter. Nothing was done without ceremony under the Vanderloyden roof, and though there were but four guests, the repast had begun at seven, punctually, so that the proper sequence of courses might be served, without haste, before the gentlemen settled down to their cigars. Archer had not seen his wife since the evening before. He had left early for the office, where he had plunged into an accumulation of unimportant business. In the afternoon, one of the senior partners had made an unexpected call on his time, and he had reached home so late that May had preceded him to the Vanderloydens and sent back the carriage. Now, across the Scoitercliff carnations and the massive plate, she struck him as pale and languid. But her eyes shone, and she talked with exaggerated animation. 
The subject which had called forth Mr. Sillerton Jackson's favorite allusion had been brought up, Archer fancied not without intention, by their hostess. The Beaufort failure, or rather, the Beaufort attitude since the failure, was still a fruitful theme for the drawing-room moralist, and after it had been thoroughly examined and condemned, Mrs. Vanderloyden had turned her scrupulous eyes on May Archer. Is it possible, dear, that what I hear is true? I was told your grandmother Mingott's carriage was seen standing at Mrs. Beaufort's door. It was noticeable that she no longer called the offending lady by her Christian name. May's color rose, and Mrs. Archer put in hastily, If it was, I'm convinced it was there without Mrs. Mingott's knowledge. Oh, you think... Mrs. Vanderloyden paused, sighed, and glanced at her husband. I'm afraid, Mr. Vanderloyden said, that Madame Olenska's kind heart may have led her into the imprudence of calling on Mrs. Beaufort, or her taste for peculiar people, put in Mrs. Archer in a dry tone, while her eyes dwelt innocently on her son's. I'm sorry to think it of Madame Olenska, said Mrs. Vanderloyden, and Mrs. Archer murmured, Oh, my dear, and after you had her twice at Scoiter Cliff. It was at this point that Mr. Jackson seized the chance to place his favorite illusion. At the Tuileries, he repeated, seeing the eyes of the company expectantly turned on him. The standard was excessively lax in some respects, and if you'd asked where Morney's money came from, or who paid the debts of some of the court beauties, I hope, dear Sillerton, said Mrs. Archer, you are not suggesting that we should adopt such standards. I never suggest, returned Mr. Jackson imperturbably. But Madame Olenska's foreign bringing up may make her less particular. Ah, the two ladies sighed. Still, to have kept her grandmother's carriage at a defaulter's door, Mr. Vanderloyden protested, and Archer guessed that he was remembering and resenting the hampers of carnations he had sent to the little house on 23rd Street. Of course, I've always said that she looks at things quite differently, Mrs. Archer summed up. A flush rose to May's forehead. She looked across the table at her husband and said, precipitately, I'm sure Ellen meant it kindly. Imprudent people are often kind, said Mrs. Archer, as if the fact were scarcely an extenuation. And Mrs. Vanderloyden murmured, if only she had consulted someone. Ah, oh, that she never did, Mrs. Archer rejoined. At this point, Mr. Vanderloyden glanced at his wife, who bent her head slightly in the direction of Mrs. Archer, and the glimmering trains of the three ladies swept out of the door while the gentlemen settled down to their cigars. Mr. Vanderloyden supplied short ones on opera nights, but they were so good that they made his guests deplore his inexorable punctuality. Archer, after the first act, had detached himself from the party and made his way to the back of the club box. From there he watched, 
over various Chivers, Mingott, and Rushworth's shoulders, the same scene that he had looked at two years previously, on the night of his first meeting with Ellen Olenska. He half expected her to appear again in old Mrs. Mingott's box, but it had remained empty, and he sat motionless, his eyes fastened on it, till suddenly Madame Nilsson's pure soprano broke into Mama, no Mama. Archer turned to the stage, where, in the familiar setting of giant roses and pen-wiper pansies, the same large blonde victim was succumbing to the same small brown seducer. From the stage, his eyes wandered to the point of the horseshoe, where May sat between two older ladies, just as, on that former evening, she had sat between Mrs. Lovell Mingott and her newly arrived foreign cousin. As on that evening, she was all in white. And Archer, who had not noticed what she wore, recognized the blue-white satin and old lace of her wedding dress. It was the custom in old New York for brides to appear in this costly garment during the first year or two of marriage. His mother, he knew, kept hers in tissue paper in the hope that Janie might someday wear it, though poor Janie was reaching the age when pearl-gray poplin and no bridesmaids would be thought more appropriate. It struck Archer that May, since their return from Europe, had seldom worn her bridal satin, and the surprise of seeing her in it made him compare her appearance with that of the young girl he had watched with such blissful anticipations two years earlier. Though May's outline was slightly heavier, as her goddess-like build had foretold, her athletic erectness of carriage and the girlish transparency of her expression remained unchanged, but for the slight languor that Archer had lately noticed in her, she would have been the exact image of the girl playing with the bouquet of lilies of the valley on her betrothal evening. The fact seemed an additional appeal to his pity. Such innocence was as moving as the trustful clasp of a child. Then he remembered the passionate generosity latent under that incurious calm. He recalled her glance of understanding when he had urged that their engagement should be announced at the Beaufort Ball. He heard the voice in which she had said in the Mission Garden, I couldn't have my happiness made out of a wrong, a wrong to someone else, and an uncontrollable longing seized him to tell her the truth and throw himself on her generosity and ask for the freedom he had once refused. Newland Archer was a quiet and self-controlled young man. Conformity to the discipline of a small society had become almost his second nature. It was deeply distasteful to him to do anything melodramatic and conspicuous, anything Mr. Vanderloyden would have deprecated and the club box condemned as bad form. But he had become suddenly 
unconscious of the club box, of Mr. Vanderleuten, of all that had so long enclosed him in the warm shelter of habit. He walked along the semicircular passage at the back of the house and opened the door of Mrs. Vanderleuten's box, as if it had been a gate into the unknown. Mama, trilled out the triumphant Marguerite, and the occupants of the box looked up in surprise at Archer's entrance. He had already broken one of the rules of his world, which forbade the entering of a box during a solo. Slipping between Mr. Vanderleuten and Sillerton Jackson, he leaned over his wife. I've got a beastly headache. Don't tell anyone, but come home, won't you? he whispered. May gave him a glance of comprehension, and he saw her whisper to his mother, who nodded sympathetically, and then she murmured an excuse to Mrs. Vanderleuten and rose from her seat just as Marguerite fell into Faust's arms. Archer, while he helped her on with her opera cloak, noticed the exchange of a significant smile between the older ladies. As they drove away, May laid her hand shyly on his. I'm sorry you don't feel well. I'm afraid they've been overworking you at the office. No, it's not that. Do you mind if I open the window? He returned confusedly, letting down the pain on his side. He sat staring out into the street, feeling his wife beside him as a silent, watchful interrogation, and keeping his eyes steadily fixed on the passing houses. At their door, she caught her skirt in the step of the carriage and fell against him. Did you hurt yourself? he asked, steadying her with his arm. No, but my poor dress. See how I've torn it, she exclaimed. She bent to gather up a mud-stained breadth and followed him up the steps into the hall. The servants had not expected them so early, and there was only a glimmer of gas on the upper landing. Archer mounted the stairs, turned up the light, and put a match to the brackets on each side of the library mantelpiece. The curtains were drawn, and the warm, friendly aspect of the room smote him, like that of a familiar face met during an unavowable errand. He noticed that his wife was very pale, and asked if she should get her some brandy. Oh, no, she exclaimed with a momentary flush as she took off her cloak, but hadn't you better go to bed at once, she added, as she opened a silver box on the table and took out a cigarette. Archer threw down the cigarette and walked to his usual place by the fire. No, my head is not as bad as that, he paused. And there's something I want to say, something important, that I must tell you at once. She had dropped into an armchair and raised her head as he spoke. Yes, dear, she rejoined, so gently that he wondered at the lack of wonder with which she received this preamble. May, he began, standing a few feet from her chair and looking over at her as if the slight distance between them were an unbridgeable abyss. The sound of his voice echoed uncannily 
through the home-like hush, and he repeated, "'There's something I've got to tell you. About myself.' She sat silent, without a movement or a tremor of her lashes. She was still extremely pale, but her face had a curious tranquility of expression that seemed drawn from some secret inner source. Archer checked the conventional phrases of self-accusal that were crowding to his lips. He was determined to put the case baldly, without vain recrimination or excuse. Madame Olenska, he said, but at the name his wife raised her hand as if to silence him. As she did so, the gaslight struck on the gold of her wedding ring. Oh, why should we talk of Ellen tonight? she asked with a slight pout of impatience. Because I ought to have spoken before. Her face remained calm. Is it really worthwhile, dear? I know I've been unfair to her at times. Perhaps we all have. You've understood her no doubt better than we did. You've always been kind to her, but what does it matter? Now it's all over. Archer looked at her blankly. Could it be possible that the sense of unreality in which he felt himself imprisoned had communicated itself to his wife? All over. What do you mean? he asked in an indistinct stammer. May still looked at him with transparent eyes. Why, since she's going back to Europe so soon, since Granny approves and understands and has arranged to make her independent of her husband, she broke off. And Archer, grasping the corner of the mantelpiece in one convulsed hand and steadying himself against it, made a vain effort to extend the same control to his reeling thoughts. I supposed he heard his wife's voice go on, that you had been kept at the office this evening about the business arrangements. It was settled this morning, I believe. She lowered her lashes under his unseeing stare, and another fugitive flush passed over her face. He understood that his own eyes must be unbearable, and turning away, rested his elbows on the mantel shelf and covered his face, Something drummed and clanged furiously in his ears. He could not tell if it were the blood in his veins or the tick of the clock on the mantel. May sat without moving or speaking while the clock slowly measured out five minutes. A lump of coal fell forward in the grate, and hearing her rise to push it back, Archer at length turned and faced her. "'It's impossible,' he exclaimed. "'Impossible? How do you know what you've just told me? I saw Ellen yesterday. I told you I'd seen her at Granny's. "'It was then that she told you? "'No, I had a note from her this afternoon. Do you want to see it?' He could not find his voice, and she went out of the room and came back almost immediately— I thought you knew, she said simply. She laid a sheet of paper on the table, and Archer put out his hand and took it up. 
The letter contained only a few lines. May, dear, I have at last made Granny understand that my visit to her could be no more than a visit, and she has been as kind and generous as ever. She sees now that if I return to Europe I must live by myself, or rather with poor Aunt Medora who is coming with me. I am hurrying back to Washington to pack up, and we sail next week. You must be very good to Granny when I'm gone, as good as you've always been to me. Ellen, if any of my friends wish to urge me to change my mind, please tell them it would be utterly useless. Archer read the letter over two or three times. Then he flung it down and burst out laughing. The sound of his laugh startled him. It recalled Janie's midnight fright when she had caught him rocking with incomprehensible mirth over May's telegram announcing that the date of their marriage had been advanced. Why did she write this? he asked, checking his laugh with a supreme effort. May met the question with her unshaken candor. I suppose because we talked things over yesterday. What things? I told her I was afraid I hadn't been fair to her, hadn't always understood how hard it must have been for her here, alone among so many people who were relations and yet strangers, who felt the right to criticize and yet didn't always know the circumstances. She paused. I knew you'd been the one friend she could always count on, and I wanted her to know that you and I were the same in all our feelings. She hesitated, as if waiting for him to speak, and then added slowly, She understood my wishing to tell her this. I think she understands everything. She went up to Archer, and taking one of his cold hands, pressed it quickly against her cheek. My head aches, too. Good night, dear, she said, and turned to the door, her torn and muddy wedding dress dragging after her across the room. End of Chapter 32 Chapter 33 It was as Mrs. Archer smilingly said to Mrs. Welland, a great event for a young couple to give their first big dinner. The Newland Archers, since they had set up their household, had received a good deal of company in an informal way. Archer was fond of having three or four friends to dine, and May welcomed them with the beaming readiness of which her mother had set her the example in conjugal affairs. Her husband questioned whether, if left to herself, she would ever have asked anyone to the house. But he had long given up trying to disengage her real self from the shape into which tradition and training had molded her. It was expected that well-off couples in New York should do a great deal of informal entertaining, and a Welland, married to an archer, was doubly pledged to the tradition. But a big dinner, with a hired chef and two borrowed footmen, 
with Roman punch, roses from Henderson's, and menus on gilt-edged cards, was a different affair, and not to be lightly undertaken. As Mrs. Archer remarked, the Roman punch made all the difference, not in itself, but by its manifold implications, since it signified either canvasbacks or terrapin, two soups, a hot and a cold sweet, full decotage with short sleeves, and guests of a proportionate importance. It was always an interesting occasion when a young pair launched their first invitations in the third person, and their summons was seldom refused ever by the seasoned and sought-after. Still, it was admittedly a triumph that the Vanderloydens, at May's request, should have stayed over in order to be present at her farewell dinner for the Countess Olenska. The two mothers-in-law sat in May's drawing-room on the afternoon of the great day, Mrs. Archer writing out the menus on Tiffany's thickest gilt-edged Bristol, while Mrs. Welland superintended the placing of the palms and standard lamps. Archer, arriving late from his office, found them still there. Mrs. Archer had turned her attention to the name cards for the table, and Mrs. Welland was considering the effect of bringing forward the large gilt sofa, so that another corner might be created between the piano and the window. May, they told him, was in the dining-room, inspecting the mound of Jacqueminot roses and maidenhair in the center of the long table, and the placing of the Maillard bonbons in open-work silver baskets between the candelabra. On the piano stood a large basket of orchids, which Mr. van der Luyden had sent from Scoiter Cliff. Everything was, in short, as it should be, on the approach of so considerable an event. Mrs. Archer ran thoughtfully over the list, checking off each name with her sharp gold pen. Henry van der Luyden, Louisa, the Lovell Mingotts, the Reggie Chiverses, Lawrence Lefferts and Gertrude, yes, I suppose May was right to have them, the Selfridge Marys, Sillerton Jackson, Van Newland and his wife, how time passes. It seems only yesterday he was your best man, Newland. And Countess Olenska, yes, I think that's all. Mrs. Welland surveyed her son-in-law affectionately. No one can say, Newland, that you and May are not giving Ellen a handsome send-off. Ah, oh, well, said Mrs. Archer, I understand May's wanting her cousin to tell people abroad that we're not quite barbarians. I'm sure Ellen will appreciate it. She was to arrive this morning, I believe. It will make a most charming last impression. The evening before sailing is usually so dreary, Mrs. Welland cheerfully continued. Archer turned towards the door, and his mother-in-law called to him, do go in and have a peep at the table, and don't let May tire herself too much. But he affected not to hear, and sprang up the stairs to his library. The room looked at him like an alien countenance composed into a polite grimace, and he perceived that it had been ruthlessly tidied 
and prepared by a judicious distribution of ashtrays and cedarwood boxes for the gentlemen to smoke in. Ah, well, he thought, it's not for long, and he went to his dressing room. Ten days had passed since Madame Olenska's departure from New York. During those ten days, Archer had had no sign from her, but that conveyed by the return of a key wrapped in tissue paper and sent to his office in a sealed envelope addressed in her hand. This retort to his last appeal might have been interpreted as a classic move in a familiar game. But the young man chose to give it a different meaning. She was still fighting against her fate, but she was going to Europe and she was not returning to her husband. Nothing, therefore, was to prevent his following her, and once he had taken the irrevocable step, and had proved to her that it was irrevocable, he believed she would not send him away. This confidence in the future had steadied him to play his part in the present. It had kept him from writing to her, or betraying by any sign or act his misery and mortification. It seemed to him that in the deadly silent game between them, the trumps were still in his hands, and he waited. There had been, nevertheless, moments sufficiently difficult to pass, as when Mr. Letterblair, the day after Madame Olenska's departure, had sent for him to go over the details of the trust which Mrs. Manson Mingott wished to create for her granddaughter. For a couple of hours Archer had examined the terms of the deed with his senior, all the while obscurely feeling that if he had been consulted it was for some reason other than the obvious one of his cousinship, and that the close of the conference would reveal it. Well, the lady can't deny that it's a handsome arrangement, Mr. Letterblair had summed up, after mumbling over a summary of the settlement. In fact, I'm bound to say she's been treated pretty handsomely all around. All around, Archer echoed with a touch of derision. Do you refer to her husband's proposal to give her back her own money? Mr. Letterblair's bushy eyebrows went up a fraction of an inch. My dear sir, the law's the law, and your wife's cousin was married under the French law. It's to be presumed she knew what that meant. Even if she did, what happened subsequently? But Archer paused. Mr. Letterblair had laid his pen handle against his big corrugated nose and was looking down it with the expression assumed by virtuous elderly gentlemen when they wish their youngers to understand that virtue is not synonymous with ignorance. My dear sir, I've no wish to extenuate the Count's transgressions, but on the other side... I wouldn't put my hand in the fire. Well, but there hadn't been tit-for-tat with the young champion, Mr. Letterblair unlocked a drawer and pushed a folded paper towards Archer. This report, the result of discreet inquiries. And then, as Archer made no effort to glance at the paper or to repudiate the suggestion, the lawyer somewhat flatly continued, I don't say it's conclusive, you observe, far from it, but... Straws show, and 
on the whole, it's eminently satisfactory for all parties that this dignified solution has been reached. Oh, eminently, Archer assented, pushing back the paper. A day or two later, on responding to a summons from Mrs. Manson Mingott, his soul had been more deeply tried. He had found the old lady depressed and querulous. You know she's deserted me, she began at once, and without waiting for his reply, Oh, don't ask me why. She gave so many reasons that I've forgotten them all. My private belief is that she couldn't face the boredom. At any rate, that's what Augusta and my daughters-in-law think. And I don't know that I altogether blame her. Olensky's a finished scoundrel, but life with him must have been a good deal gayer than it is in Fifth Avenue. Not that the family would admit that. They think Fifth Avenue is heaven with the Rue de la Paix thrown in. And poor Ellen, of course, has no idea of going back to her husband. She held out as firmly as ever against that. So she's to settle down in Paris with that fool Medora. Well, Paris is Paris, and you can keep a carriage there on next to nothing. But she was gay as a bird, and I shall miss her. Two tears, the parched tears of the old, rolled down her puffy cheeks and vanished into the abysses of her bosom. All I ask is, she concluded, that they shouldn't bother me any more. I really must be allowed to digest my gruel. And she twinkled a little wistfully at Archer. It was that evening, on his return home, that May announced her intention of giving a farewell dinner to her cousin. Madame Olenska's name had not been pronounced between them since the night of her flight to Washington, and Archer looked at his wife with surprise. A dinner? Why? he interrogated. Her color rose. But you like Ellen. I thought you'd be pleased. It's awfully nice, you're putting it in that way, but I really don't see. I mean to do it, Newland, she said, quietly rising and going to her desk. Here are the invitations all written. Mother helped me. She agrees that we ought to. She paused, embarrassed and yet smiling, and Archer suddenly saw before him the embodied image of the family. Oh, all right, he said, staring with unseeing eyes at the list of guests that she had put in his hand. When he entered the drawing-room before dinner, May was stooping over the fire and trying to coax the logs to burn in their unaccustomed setting of immaculate tiles. The tall lamps were all lit, and Mr. Vanderloyden's orchids had been conspicuously disposed in various receptacles of modern porcelain and knobby silver. Mrs. Newland Archer's drawing-room was generally thought a great success. A gilt bamboo jardiniere, in which the primulas and scenarias were punctually renewed, blocked the access to the bay window, where the old-fashioned would have preferred a bronze reduction of the Venus de Milo. The sofas and armchairs of pale brocade were cleverly grouped about little plush tables, densely covered with silver toys, porcelain animals, and efflorescent photograph frames and tall, rosy-shaded lamps shot up like tropical flowers among the palms. "'I don't think Ellen has ever seen this room lighted up,' said May, 
rising flushed from her struggle and sending about her a glance of pardonable pride. The brass tongs which she had propped against the side of the chimney fell with a crash that drowned her husband's answer, and before he could restore them, Mr. and Mrs. Vanderloyden were announced. The other guests quickly followed, for it was known that the Vanderloydens liked to dine punctually. The room was nearly full, and Archer was engaged in showing to Mrs. Selfridge Mary a small, highly varnished, Verbeckhoven study of sheep, which Mr. Welland had given May for Christmas, when he found Madame Olenska at his side. She was excessively pale, and her pallor made her dark hair seem denser and heavier than ever. Perhaps that, or the fact that she had wound several rows of amber beads about her neck, reminded him suddenly of the little Ellen Mingott he had danced with at children's parties when Medora Manson had first brought her to New York. The amber beads were trying to her complexion, or her dress was perhaps unbecoming. Her face looked lusterless and almost ugly, and he had never loved it as he did at that minute. Their hands met, and he thought he heard her say, Yes, we're sailing tomorrow in the Russia. Then there was an unmeaning noise of opening doors, and after an interval, May's voice, Newland, dinner's been announced. Won't you please take Ellen in? Madame Olenska put her hand on his arm, and he noticed that the hand was ungloved, and remembered how he had kept his eyes fixed on it the evening he had sat with her in a little 23rd Street drawing room. All the beauty that had forsaken her face seemed to have taken refuge in the long, pale fingers and faintly dimpled knuckles on his sleeve, and he said to himself, If it were only to see her hand again, I should have to follow her. It was only at an entertainment ostensibly offered to a foreign visitor that Mrs. Vanderloyden could suffer the diminution of being placed on her host's left. The fact of Madame Olenska's foreignness could hardly have been more adroitly emphasized than by this farewell tribute, and Mrs. Vanderloyden accepted her displacement with an affability which left no doubt as to her approval. There were certain things that had to be done, and if done at all, done handsomely and thoroughly. And one of these in the old New York Code was the tribal rally around a kinswoman about to be eliminated from the tribe. There was nothing on earth that the Wellens and Mingots would not have done to proclaim their unalterable affection for the Countess Olenska, now that her passage for Europe was engaged. And Archer, at the head of his table, sat marveling at the silent, untiring activity with which her popularity had been retrieved, grievances against her silenced, her past countenanced, and her present irradiated by the family approval. Mrs. Vanderloyden shone on her with a dim benevolence which was her nearest approach to cordiality, and Mr. Vanderloyden 
from his seat at May's right, cast down the table glances plainly intended to justify all the carnations he had sent from Scoiter Cliff. Archer, who seemed to be assisting at the scene in a state of odd imponderability, as if he floated somewhere between chandelier and ceiling, wondered at nothing so much as his own share in the proceedings. As his glance traveled from one placid, well-fed face to another, he saw all the harmless-looking people engaged upon May's canvasbacks as a band of dumb conspirators, and himself and the pale woman on his right as the center of their conspiracy. And then it came over him, in a vast flash made up of many broken gleams, that to all of them he and Madame Olenska were lovers. Lovers in the extreme sense, peculiar to foreign vocabularies. He guessed himself to have been, for months, the center of countless, silently observing eyes and patiently listening ears. He understood that, by means as yet unknown to him, the separation between himself and the partner of his guilt had been achieved, and that now the whole tribe had rallied about his wife on the tacit assumption that nobody knew anything or had ever imagined anything, and that the occasion of the entertainment was simply May Archer's natural desire to take an affectionate leave of her friend and cousin. It was the old New York way of taking life without effusion of blood, the way of people who dreaded scandal more than disease, who placed decency above courage, and who considered that nothing was more ill-bred than scenes, except the behavior of those who gave rise to them. As these thoughts succeeded each other in his mind, Archer felt like a prisoner in the center of an armed camp. He looked about the table and guessed at the inexorableness of his captors, from the tone in which, over the asparagus from Florida, they were dealing with Beaufort and his wife. It's to show me, he thought, what would happen to me and a deathly sense of the superiority of implication and analogy over direct action, and of silence over rash words, closed in on him like the doors of the family vault. He laughed and met Mrs. Vanderloyden's startled eyes. You think it laughable, she said, with a pinched smile. Of course, poor Regina's idea of remaining in New York has its ridiculous side, I suppose, and Archer muttered, of course. At this point, he became conscious that Madame Olenska's other neighbor had been engaged for some time with the lady on his right. At the same moment, he saw that May, serenely enthroned between Mr. Vanderloyden and Mr. Selfridge Mary, had cast a quick glance down the table. It was evident that the host and the lady on his right 
could not sit through the whole meal in silence. He turned to Madame Olenska, and her pale smile met him. Oh, do let's see it through, it seemed to say. Did you find the journey tiring? He asked in a voice that surprised him by its naturalness. And she answered that, on the contrary, she had seldom traveled with fewer discomforts. Except, you know, the dreadful heat in the train, she added. And he remarked that she would not suffer from that particular hardship in the country she was going to. I never, he declared with intensity, was more nearly frozen than once in April, in the train between Calais and Paris. She said she did not wonder, but remarked that, after all, one could always carry an extra rug, and that every form of travel had its hardships. To which he abruptly returned that he thought them all of no account, compared with the blessedness of getting away. She changed color, and he added, his voice suddenly rising in pitch, I mean to do a lot of traveling myself before long. A tremor crossed her face, and leaning over to Reggie Chivers, he cried out, I say, Reggie, what do you say to a trip around the world? Now, next month, I mean. I'm game if you are. At which Mrs. Reggie piped up that she could not think of letting Reggie go till after the Martha Washington ball she was getting up for the blind asylum in Easter week. And her husband placidly observed that by that time he would have to be practicing for the international polo match. But Mr. Selfridge Mary had caught the phrase, round the world, and having once circled the globe in his steam yacht, he seized the opportunity to send down the table several striking items concerning the shallowness of the Mediterranean ports. Though, after all, he added, it didn't matter, for when you'd seen Athens and Smyrna and Constantinople, what else was there? And Mrs. Mary said she could never be too grateful to Dr. Bencombe for having made them promise not to go to Naples on account of the fever. But you must have three weeks to do India properly, her husband conceded, anxious to have it understood that he was no frivolous globetrotter. And at this point, the ladies went up to the drawing room. In the library, in spite of weightier presences, Lawrence Lefferts predominated. The talk, as usual, had veered around to the Beauforts, and even Mr. Vanderloyden and Mr. Selfridge Mary, installed in the honorary armchairs tacitly reserved for them, paused to listen to the younger man's Philippic. Never had Lefferts so abounded in the sentiments that adorn Christian manhood and exalt the sanctity of the home. Indignation lent him a scathing eloquence, and it was clear that if others had followed his example and acted as he talked, society would never have been weak enough to receive a foreign upstart like Beaufort. No, sir, not even if he'd married a Vanderloyden or a Lanning instead of a Dallas. And what chance would there have been, Lefferts wrathfully questioned, of his marrying into such a family as the Dallases, if he had not already wormed his way into certain houses, as people like Mrs. Lemuel Struthers had managed to worm theirs in his wake. If society chose to open its doors to vulgar women, 
the harm was not great, though the gain was doubtful. But once it got in the way of tolerating men of obscure origin and tainted wealth, the end was total disintegration, and at no distant date. If things go on at this pace, Lefferts thundered, looking like a young prophet dressed by pool, and who had not yet been stoned, we shall see our children fighting for invitations to swindlers' houses and marrying Beaufort's bastards. Oh, I say, dried mild, Reggie Chivers and young Newland protested, while Mr. Selfridge Mary looked genuinely alarmed and an expression of pain and disgust settled on Mr. Vanderloyden's sensitive face. Has he got any? cried Mr. Sillerton Jackson, pricking up his ears. And while Lefferts tried to turn the question with a laugh, the old gentleman twittered into Archer's ear. Queer those fellows who are always wanting to set things right. The people who have the worst cooks are always telling you they're poisoned when they dine out. But I hear there are pressing reasons for our friend Lawrence's diatribe. Typewriter this time, I understand. The talk swept past Archer like some senseless river running and running because it did not know enough to stop. He saw, on the faces about him, expressions of interest, amusement, and even mirth. He listened to the younger men's laughter and to the praise of the Archer Madeira, which Mr. Vanderloyden and Mr. Mary were thoughtfully celebrating. Through it all, he was dimly aware of a general attitude of friendliness towards himself, as if the guard of the prisoner he felt himself to be were trying to soften his captivity. And the perception increased his passionate determination to be free. In the drawing-room, where they presently joined the ladies, he met May's triumphant eyes and read in them the conviction that everything had gone off beautifully. She rose from Madame Olenska's side, and immediately Mrs. Vanderloyden beckoned the latter to a seat on the gilt sofa where she throned. Mrs. Selfridge Mary bore across the room to join them, and it became clear to Archer that here also a conspiracy of rehabilitation and obliteration was going on. The silent organization, which held his little world together, was determined to put itself on record as never, for a moment, having questioned the propriety of Madame Olenska's conduct or the completeness of Archer's domestic felicity. All these amiable and inexorable persons were resolutely engaged in pretending to each other that they had never heard of, suspected, or even conceived possible, the least hint to the contrary. And from this tissue of elaborate mutual dissimulation, Archer once more disengaged the fact that New York believed him to be Madame Olenska's lover. He caught the glitter of victory in his wife's eyes, and for the first time understood that she shared the belief. The discovery roused a laughter of inner devils that reverberated through all his efforts to discuss the Martha Washington Ball with Mrs. Reggie Chivers and little Mrs. Newland. And so the evening swept on, running and running like a senseless river that did not know how to stop.
At length he saw that Madame Olenska had risen and was saying goodbye. He understood that in a moment she would be gone and tried to remember what he said to her at dinner, but he could not recall a single word they had exchanged. She went up to May, the rest of the company making a circle about her as she advanced. The two young women clasped hands, then May bent forward and kissed her cousin. Certainly our hostess is much the handsomer of the two, Archie heard Reggie Chivers say in an undertone to young Mrs. Newland. And he remembered Beaufort's coarse sneer at May's ineffectual beauty. A moment later he was in the hall, putting Madame Olenska's cloak about her shoulders. Through all his confusion of mind, he had held fast to the resolve to say nothing that might startle or disturb her. Convinced that no power could now turn him from his purpose, he had found strength to let events shape themselves as they would. But as he followed Madame Olenska into the hall, he thought with a sudden hunger of being for a moment alone with her at the door of her carriage. "'Is your carriage here?' he asked, and at that moment Mrs. Vanderloyden, who was being majestically inserted into her sables, said gently, "'We are driving dear Ellen home.' Archer's heart gave a jerk, and Madame Olenska, clasping her cloak and fan with one hand, held out the other to him. "'Goodbye,' she said. "'Goodbye, but I shall see you soon in Paris,' he answered aloud. It seemed to him that he had shouted it. "'Oh,' she murmured, "'if you and May could come.' Mr. Vanderloyden advanced to give her his arm, and Archer turned to Mrs. Vanderloyden. For a moment, in the billowy darkness inside the big landau, he caught the dim oval of a face— eyes shining steadily, and she was gone. As he went up the steps, he crossed Lawrence Lefferts coming down with his wife. Lefferts caught his host by the sleeve, drawing back to let Gertrude pass. I say, old chap, do you mind just letting it be understood that I'm dining with you at the club tomorrow night? Thanks so much, you old brick. Good night. It did go off beautifully, didn't it? May questioned him from the threshold of the library. Archer roused himself with a start. As soon as the last carriage had driven away, he had come up to the library and shut himself in, with the hope that his wife, who still lingered below, would go straight to her room. But there she stood, pale and drawn, yet radiating the facetious energy of one who has passed beyond fatigue. "'May I come and talk it over?' she asked. "'Of course, if you like, but you must be awfully sleepy. "'No, I'm not sleepy. I should like to sit with you a little.' "'Very well,' he said, pushing her chair near the fire. "'She sat down, and he resumed his seat.' but neither spoke for a long time. At length, Archer began abruptly. Since you're not tired and want to talk, there's something I must tell you. I tried the other night. She looked at him quickly. Yes, dear, something about yourself. 
about myself. You say you're not tired. Well, I am. Horribly tired. In an instant she was all tender anxiety. Oh, I've seen it coming on, Newland. You've been so wickedly overworked. Perhaps it's that. Anyhow, I want to make a break. A break? To give up the law? To go away, at any rate, at once, on a long trip, ever so far off, away from everything. He paused, conscious that he had failed in his attempt to speak with the indifference of a man who longs for a change and yet is too weary to welcome it. Do what he would, the cord of eagerness vibrated. Away from everything, he repeated. Ever so far? Where, for instance? she asked. Oh, I don't know. India or Japan? She stood up, and as he sat with bent head, his chin propped on his hands, he felt her warmly and fragrantly hovering over him. As far as that. But I'm afraid you can't, dear, she said in an unsteady voice. Not unless you take me with you. And then, as he was silent, she went on, in tones so clear and evenly pitched, that each separate syllable tapped like a little hammer on his brain. That is, if the doctors will let me go. But I'm afraid they won't. For you see, Newland, I've been sure since this morning of something I've been so longing and hoping for. He looked up at her with a sick stare and she sank down, all dew and roses, and hid her face against his knee. Oh, my dear, he said, holding her to him while his cold hand stroked her hair. There was a long pause, which the inner devils filled with strident laughter. Then May freed herself from his arms and stood up. You didn't guess... Yes, I know. That is, of course, I hoped. They looked at each other for an instant, and again fell silent. Then, turning his eyes from hers, he asked abruptly, Have you told anyone else? Only Mama and your mother, she paused, and then added hurriedly, the blood flushing up to her forehead, that is, and Ellen, you know, I told you we'd had a long talk one afternoon, and how dear she was to me. Ah, said Archer, his heart stopping. He felt that his wife was watching him intently. Did you mind my telling her first, Newland? Mind? Why should I? He made a last effort to collect himself. But that was a fortnight ago, wasn't it? I thought you said you weren't sure till today. Her color burned deeper, but she held his gaze. No, I wasn't sure then, but I told her I was. And you see, I was right, 
she exclaimed, her blue eyes wet with victory. End of chapter 33 I know. So all that time, we thought May was just a wilting violet in the corner and didn't have a clue what Newland was doing. She had it wired. How clever, how clever of her to bide her time and wait until the moment was right. Circle the wagons around her. Vote Ellen off the island with the family and then play her final card. So Newland couldn't run after Ellen. Genius! Genius, I say. Yes, she was. Wow. <laughs> I keep thinking, well played, May. Well played. Because what can Newland do? It's over. It's over. It's over. And Ellen knew it. And Ellen, Ellen kind of always seemed to know it, but then Ellen was never really the pursuer, was she? She kind of had her own life. She was doing her own thing. Newland kept popping up. She kept saying, there's no future here. Doesn't mean I don't love you. Just means there's no future here. She was always kind of the realist. And poor Newland, the dilettante. Hmm. And I think that that's when it all comes down to it, and of course, we haven't read the last chapter yet, but when it all comes down to, to this moment, I think this is why I've walked away from this book over and over again, still liking Newland. Because if he were Julian Beaufort, if he were Larry Lefferts, if he really were a scoundrel at heart, or a heartless scoundrel at best, he would have been sneaking around on May just to sneak around on May. It wouldn't have mattered. And if he really had been a heartless putz, it wouldn't have mattered that she was pregnant. He still would have gone off and left her. Certainly men did. It would not have been outside of the realm of possibility. It would have probably been outside the realm of propriety. And I think the family made their voice loud and clear as a united front on this one. But but Newland, ultimately, he's trapped, and he'll never be fulfilled, happy. I don't know, fill in the blank. But he's, you don't, you don't get the sense that he's going to turn around and say, well, you got this one, May, but I'll screw you over next time. He's not He's not that guy. And that's, I think, one of the things that makes next week's chapter, our final chapter, chapter 34, so interesting. And on that note, I'm going to leave you. Mean? Probably. But good, because it stretches us across the beginning of the new year. If you celebrated Christmas, I hope you had a marvelous Christmas. I hope you had fun with your family and families and extended families and friends and children if they were around and all that. And as we head into a new year, 2014, I can't believe it. I hope 
all of you have the most wonderful new year. New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and New Year. Take care of yourself. I'll bring you the final chapter very soon. Take care. Bye. Like Craftlet? Leave us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or post a link to us when you comment on literary blogs. You can listen via Stitcher Radio, craftlit.com, just-the-books.com, or via our Android, our new Windows 8, or iPhone app. You can also use the free Craftlit app to access premium subscriber content. Just the Books and Craftlit are made possible by the support of our listeners, and for that, I'm truly grateful. And remember, 